Can you quickly organize yourself into groups of three and just select one, two, three? You each have a number. One, two, three. So if I can be honest with you, when it comes to mission, I certainly don't always feel confident. Whenever I, I'm surrounded by maybe what seems like a large group of people who don't know Jesus, I feel many different things. Sometimes I don't care because I'm tired. I'm just trying to get through the day. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed. How on earth are we ever going to reach these people? Sometimes I feel discouraged. We'll never reach these people. Sometimes I feel irritated. It's your fault that you haven't been reached. (laughs) But perhaps Jesus wants something else to beat in our hearts. And as I prayed, I I believe God wants to put some of his own emotion into our hearts. So next time you look at a bunch of people who don't know Jesus, you'd feel more of what he feels. I've got three points for you today. Missional he, missional we, missional me. Okay, easy to remember. Number one, you're missional he. Number two, in your groups of three, you're missional we. Number three, you're missional me. And after each point, I'm just going to give you a 30-second break. You're going to stand up, that group of three, and number one will pray first. And then after the second point, number two will pray. So listen in if you're number one for missional he. A, a, A missional church needs all three. When I speak about mission, I'm speaking about evangelism. I'm not talking about social justice, cultural renewal, as important as all of that is. Missional he. People matter to us because they matter to Jesus. This has to pervade the heart of every uh, leader, the heart of every church. Matthew chapter 9, I've been going through in my own devotions this last week, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus sees people who don't know him, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. The words helpless and harassed, I did a little word study on the Greek words, and they have the lexical range of uh, plundered, distressed, bewildered, dejected, scattered. Uh, To be fair, in uh, the higher socioeconomic realms, often it doesn't seem like people are helpless and harassed, but that's just a perception. Life eventually gets to all of us. I think about the community I live in, Constantia, a very affluent community. People look like they've got their lives together. But just this week, we have been harassed as a community. As a 16-year-old girl had her life taken from her, and thousands of people went on a silent vigil, harassed by the horribleness and the hardships of evil on planet Earth. But even if you had a good run of no hardship, the reality is, Biblically speaking, everyone is helpless and harassed under the power and the tyranny of sin, apart from Jesus Christ. Much, much better to come into Jesus' fold, right? He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep by name. There's the privilege in Psalm 23 of having someone to restore our soul, someone to guide us in paths of righteousness, someone to walk with us in our darkest season, driving away fear and replacing it with comfort. My heart goes out to people who are going through tragedy and don't have Jesus in their lives. And when Jesus looks at people who don't know him, he feels compassion. The Greek word is splugchnistes. It's this potent word, the most powerful word in the Greek language. Probably when it comes to emotion, it speaks about a person being stirred to the deepest depths of their being. Jesus' heart is not made of stone. It's an open wound of love. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus, still looking at the crowd, switches metaphors from the endangered, bewildered sheep to the harvest that is potentially neglected. What feelings uh, does the harvester have when he or she looks at the harvest field? My wife uh, works part-time for one of the Cape Wine uh, uh, 
farms and uh, the last several weeks has been harvest time. Well, I'll tell you what the feelings are when you talk to the winemakers. Excitement. And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Uh, Jesus sees the greatness of human need, not as something crushing, but as a great opportunity. Uh, I almost imagine a certain possibility thinking as Jesus looks at the hills and hills of, uh, of Sauvignon Blanc, Cabada be reaped. There's also an urgency. There's a window period, every, every harvester knows, for lifting grapes from a vine or wheat from the fields. Miss the opportunity and the harvest is lost. It's unimaginable that this opportunity would be, would be missed. In John 4, Jesus says to the disciples, don't say four months more. Look, the fields are ripe for harvest. Now is the time. But the workers are few, says Jesus. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Matthew, why are you telling us this? Why are you quoting Jesus here? It's because he wants us to carry Jesus' heart. God's plan is that we would care passionately about people far from God. We would feel some of Jesus' compassion and concern for people, sheep without a shepherd. We would share some of his excitement and urgency about the opportunity, like a harvester feels towards the harvest. And he wants us to join in his work as under-shepherds, as under-harvesters. And and the language there of being sent out comes. A beautiful theme in the scriptures. Jesus describes himself as the sent one so many times in the gospel of John. In John 20, he says, as the father has sent me, so I send you. We sometimes imagine him saying, guys, I've nearly run my race. And now you guys are going to be the sent ones. But Jesus never abdicates being the sent one. He is still the, the, the chief shepherd and the chief. He is the Lord of the harvest. He invites us to join him, not take over from where he left off. Which is why our work starts in prayer, includes the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but then it moves on into powerful work where we actually engage the harvest and sheep who need a shepherd. A church's heart must beat in sync with Jesus. People matter to him and they should matter to us. So you stand up in your groups of three. Number one, just pray a quick 30-second prayer, giving vent that we would have Jesus' heart, missional he. Okay, could you wrap that prayer up and take a seat? Missional he translates into missional we. And by this, I mean we strategically collaborate for a greater harvest. I'm now talking to a church. Jesus sends out a team of workers. Any harvester knows that you don't just let one person loose on the field, that there is a strategy. You get a team of people and you have a particular plan for maximizing the harvest. It speaks of a collective effort. And I want to propose that every leadership team of a church should regularly discuss the question, how can we best equip and organize our church to help more people find and follow Jesus? 
How can we best equip and organize our church to help more people find and follow Jesus? And different contexts and different times in history and different leadings of the Spirit and gifts on the team will come up with different answers. I thought what I'd like to do here is maybe just give you an insight into where we as common ground congregation leaders are in terms of our current strategy. We've been asking this question the last few months, and we've come to the place where we're looking each other in the eyes and saying, let us congregation leaders regularly evaluate how we've been doing with regard to evangelism. And uh, these points, I've got five of them, may or may not be useful to you, but if the shoe fits, you can certainly have it. The truth is that after about eight years into the Common Ground story, we'd seen some people come to faith, but overall, there was a huge dissatisfaction. We had done a lot of praying for the harvest, and had seen very little results. And we began to wonder if perhaps we needed to change our strategy, and I'm glad that we did have that honest conversation, and by God's leading, a bunch of changes happened. But somewhere along the line, the language of dry riverbed, come trickle, come stream, come river came about. So that in any congregation, if you would ask how many people have been coming to faith, either you're a dry riverbed, let's be honest, you just no one's come to faith in the last year, or there's a trickle, or maybe it's a stream, or maybe it's a river. I find this language to be empowering because a dry riverbed can become a trickle after a year, and after a couple of years, it could be a stream, could be a river, and we need to have faith that we get to river state, uh, however many years it takes us. We look each other in the eyes and we say, let's regularly motivate and equip our people to introduce others to Jesus. Uh, we need to mobilize our people to, 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 to live lives towards people far from God. So we equip our church and, uh, that, that I'm part of with the language of friendship, conversation, invitation, Maybe you've got better language. This is the one we've been using. We say, hey, you, you need to enlarge your relational range under friendship. You need to spend time with people far from God. You need to get people into your homes. You need to build on common ground. And we encourage them to move beyond friendship to having some conversations. We speak about having conversations that count or telling your God's story or asking inquiringly and curiously uh, about people's own faith journeys. If they're not asking about yours, what about you asking towards them? And then we, in, we encourage people to invite their friends, friendship, conversation, invitation, and we constantly present ideas of things they could invite their friends or family members or colleagues or neighbors to. But it's not enough just to equip our people. We want to motivate our people. So we need to regularly remind people about missional he and bring it through. You know, in any given year, we ask, how many times have we preached about this? We want to try to show more videos or live testimonies of people who've encountered Jesus Christ. We found yesheis.com, an amazing resource of these kind of videos. We make a big thing about baptisms and try get the story behind the baptism to come about. And we keep on reminding ourselves, we know we're so busy as leaders, but if we don't lead by example in this, it'll never happen. I was so delighted this last December, trying to get a spot in one of the many holiday houses of leaders in, the, in our church in Betty's Bay, and they were all filled up. And as I found out, it was mainly with unchurched friends. So here you've got leaders in the church filling up their, their holidays with unchurched friends. And as you saw the situation, you realize, here are people that are living missional me, but it came out of years of encouraging them and seemed to take forever. We look each other in the eyes and we also say, let's wisely exploit dedications baptisms, weddings, funerals. You've got a whole bunch of people who are unchurched. They're going to be receptive to you. So let's do this in a way that you winsomely present the gospel. 
We look each other in the eyes and we say, let's connect with the city through non-threatening events or courses. Of course, on the one end of the spectrum is the Alpha journey, uh, which is, you know, uh, raw evangelism, really. The other other extreme of the spectrum would be social events, uh, fun fundraisings like we're doing this Saturday, or women's events, or raising parents, or pre-marriage courses where we anticipate a lot of unchurched people just connecting with us, where there is an evangelism, but they're having hopefully a positive experience of this particular church. And then we say, let's sharpen our Sunday blade. One of the changes that happened after eight or ten years into our journey is we said, let's try and make every Sunday a good Sunday to invite unchurched people to. Your context, this might not be part of your ministry philosophy, but where we live, it certainly is worthwhile. We used to have guest services once or twice a year, put all this energy in. And then it dawned on us, what if every single Sunday meeting we really tried to capitalize upon in terms of reaching people, we realized there'll be 54 evangelism events a year if you include uh, East, uh, Good Friday and Christmas. So, so, we, so we, we try to create Sundays that will winsomely engage unchurched people, things like excellent or at least decent music, uh, people authentically enjoying God. Uh, from the moment you arrive in the street to your seat, there needs to be warmth, clear direction. Uh, when people are dropping off kids and teenagers, hopefully that will be a positive experience. We want to welcome people. Everyone who's new, they should feel like they're meant to be there. We don't want to embarrass them. We'll try to explain when things seem a little unusual or weird. We, we ask our church to give, but we take the pressure off visitors to give. We think about the length of meeting uh, and especially preaching. Preaching, like we heard from Andrew, is, is something the Holy Spirit really tends to powerfully use, not only in building up the church, but evangelizing people. And uh, we speak about double impact preaching, preaching that both uh, edifies believers and engages people far from God. We speak about preaching like they're there, and eventually they will be there. In the early days of going to, to double impact preaching, people looked around, who are you talking to? And we kept on going. So after week one, a person would go, Philip, I wish I invited my brother to that. Week two, uh, I wish I invited my brother. Week three, I wish I invited my brother. Week four, the brother is there. Watching the language. How do you, what do you call non-Christian people? You call them unbelievers, lost people. We like to speak to those of you who are new to church or back in church after a long time. Or those of you who don't believe in Jesus or you're not so sure what you believe about Jesus. And we preach and we get to Jesus and his grace as the climax and the hero of the message. We also look at each other in the eyes and say, let's look for bumper Sundays when more unchurched people than usual come. We want to capitalize on these high attendance uh, days. So we, we schedule two or three attractional series in a year where we just know uh, a lot more unchurched people will come because the topic is so immediately relevant to them. Uh, we look for standoff days, like this year we're doing Mother's Day. We turn it into a family celebration Sunday, and we'll encourage people to invite their friends. Uh, Christmas and Easter are huge days. We look for opportunities like dedications. One of the things we're toying with is what if we were to do um, vow renewals in your 10th and your 20th and your 30th uh, you know, wedding vow, vow renewals, and we tell people, invite your family to the service and then take them to lunch afterwards to celebrate. Anything you can think of to get a whole bunch of unchurched people into the meeting. We haven't done it yet, but these are the kind of things we toy with. 
And we look at each other and say, let's work on the critical sickle, sickle swing, the moment of throwing out the net or inviting people to respond. If we can be honest, we feel like we haven't been strong in that. We're going, we need to give more time to this. Our messages tend to be so full that by the end, the preacher is you know, running out of time and you just haven't given it enough thought. What if we were to put as a big rock when you're thinking about the Sunday meeting, this moment of actually throwing out the net and bringing faith to that moment? And, uh, and, and, and some skill to that moment. Missional he, people matter to Jesus, they should matter to us. Missional uh, we, strategically uh, collaborating for a greater harvest. Stand up in your groups three. Person number two, pray about missional we. Would you be seated, please? And then finally, missional me. Missional me. Uh, you can uh, work so hard on missional we, for example, in a Sunday meeting, but notice that not many people are coming. It's because people aren't actually living their lives towards the lost, and therefore they aren't inviting their friends. So you need missional he, missional we. You also need missional me. And by this, I mean a, living a life that intersects, connects with, and detects people far from God. Living a life that intersects with, connects with, and detects people far from God. And uh, this is similar to what I spoke about just now, friendship, conversation, invitation. It just comes at it from a slightly different angle. And what I'd like to share with you is what the Holy Spirit has been teaching me in Missional Me over the last two years. And intersect, connect, and detect really gets at the heart of it. By intersect, I mean go to the places where people are, where hundreds of people are. Go to the places where hundreds of people are. It could be gym. It could be the beach. In our case, it's just you know, being involved in a school. And if you want to get to meet lots of people, just have lots of kids and put them to lots of schools, you'll have an endless connection uh, point. And, and if you're on your way to going somewhere, just remember to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Because you might not be sharing your faith with people, but a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit is often observably different to other human beings. So arrive there, asking the Holy Spirit to touch you. People might notice there's something different about your life. You intersect, just put yourself where people are, and you're friendly and you're warm. Which leads to number two, connect. Build lots of connections and friendships at these intersections. So you're going to the intersections. Now, over many weeks and months, years, connect. Build lots of connections and friendships. You might intersect with hundreds of people, but you end up connecting with 10 
or 20 people. And remember names when a person gives you their name. Don't forget their name. Write it down if you must. Create a little list on your phone. Especially look for people that you just hit it off with. You've got something in common. At these points of intersection, just try, get a little bit of margin so that you've got five or ten minutes just to connect with some people where possible. And then remember that way to fast track relationships other than building common ground is to be a real human being. And just be real and be interested in people's lives. And then you could take it to the next level, invite them for a meal. Which leads to number three, detect. Detect, and by this I mean, which one or two of these 10 or 20 people that I've connected with seem particularly responsive to me, or maybe even to spiritual things? They seem particularly responsive to me, or maybe even spiritual things. Might be 10 or 20 people, but you can just tell those people haven't even gone there with the fact that you're a Christian, and maybe they know already, but they just don't go there. Other people just really seem to be open to you as a person. Well, in these cases, you can move to conversation and invitation stage. You intersect with hundreds, you connect with tens, and you end up detecting two or three. And I'd just like to tell you some stories of this intersect, connect, detect journey I've been on in the last year or two. Well, it starts with uh, moving into our home. Julie and I prayed, God, here we are. We're moving into the hood because we planted a church there. Please give us neighbors who will be receptive to the gospel. Well, we were sure that Chris and Natasha weren't the case. They were the trendiest people we'd met. Natasha's uh, godfather is Wilbur Smith, and her granddad is like one of the most famous Trechikov famous artists ever to come out of South Africa, and Chris is a famous artist in Cape Town. They were super trendy, and we invited them over to a meal. We were really nervous. I thought in four years' time, I'm going to tell these guys I'm a Christian, but let's just build a relationship. <laughs> and uh, immediately, they asked what we did, and it came up. Well, it didn't help. Chris said, no, he was once a Christian, but uh, he's over it, because there's 10,000 Christianities, and yours is just one. Natasha then had to goad me about the exclusiveness of Christianity. I thought, okay, in eight years' time, we'll come back to this. Well, what a surprise. A few months later, just building these connections, friendships. She had a baby, drop off food, that kind of stuff. And she says, Taryn, we would really would like to come to church. I nearly fell over. I got such a, a surprise. That Sunday, they SMS us, well, you haven't invited us. And I remember phoning uh, the meeting leader saying, we got a real one coming. Don't blow it. Like these are the... <laughs> And, uh, and then I was preaching, and Andrew, you'd be happy to know it was, I was preaching the hard sayings of Jesus, and it was heavy and hard. I was like, God, how did you time this one? And anyway, she meets someone who was the head girl of her school who invites her to her home group. She goes that week, and she shares that she was really impressed. She doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but she's really impressed with somebody who could speak so strong and say what he believes. So she was drawn to Jesus. Well, over a couple of months, doing Alpha and more and more conversations, there came a time when she put her faith in Jesus and Chris returned back into the harbor of faith. Well, I think about... Do you guys just want to watch three-minute testimony of Natasha? Let's just quickly do that. Let's watch the screen. Duncan, if you could put Natasha on the screen. Duncan, you're up there, eh? Or Simon? No one's there. Okay, it's not working. We might get it right later, otherwise, no problem. Let me tell you about Tristan Garner. Here, I intersect with this guy on Facebook of all places. I thought I knew him and I befriended him. I don't normally do that. And he starts commenting on all my stuff. And then I looked at a picture of him. I've never seen this guy in my life. Well, one day I arrive at the surf and we're both doing a 30-minute trek to dunes. And he goes, hey. And, and so we chat. And it turns out he's, he's a pilot and he's moving to my part of the world. And I 
hook him up with the, the teacher who's now going to get him into, uh, sorry, I mean, connect him to the teacher who's going to get him into, that, the meaning of that word has changed over the years, if you didn't know. <laughs> connect him up with the teacher who gets his daughter into the school, and we build a bit of a friendship, but I know it goes to the next stage, intersect, connect. It goes to detect stage when he phones me, says, my dad is dying. Please, Taryn, come to the hospital. I know you walk with God. Come pray for my family. And I chat with him since then. And another crisis hits him. I go around to his house. He got hit by crime. And his wife starts coming to church. And he's come two or three times. The last time I went surfing with him, he told me that, you know, if someone dies, they become part of the object. Or that, you know, if someone crashed into a tree, now the lady's part of the tree. I'm going, okay, this guy's got a distance. But he wanted to know all about the doctrine of the Trinity. And he was totally shocked to hear that, the, that Jesus pre-existed. So he's totally receptive, and I anticipate there'll come a time when he, he comes fully in. Then there's Warren Williams. I intersect with this guy in the pastoral duty or privilege of marrying people. This one is totally orchestrated by the Lord of the Harvest himself. I go to a wedding. There's a wonderful photographer. I chat with him. I go to another wedding. First one in Longabon, second one in Heart Bay the following weekend. Now in Cape Town, there are hundreds of venues, hundreds of wedding photographers, hundreds, hundreds of people doing weddings. It's the same guy. So we end up chatting afterwards. And uh, he says, what church do you go to? So I tell him, and he says, oh, he once married, he once, the, he filmed a couple that, that, that got married, it, they came from common ground, and that, they really impressed him. There was a purity about their lives, he uses the word. So I said, where do you live? He told me, I said, well, do you ever want to, maybe you can visit our church? And he says, uh, okay, and he seems quite interested. I give him our website detail. Well, the next two weeks later, I go to another wedding in Stellenbosch, guess who it is? <laughs> so, so now we, you know, the conversation goes to the next level. And he says, tell me again that website address. Well, the next weekend, I'm not going to a wedding. I'm going to a coffee shop on a wine farm. And he's filming right then. I sit down next to him and I go to him. I go, Warren, sorry to say it, but God is after you. <laughs> and he laughs. And he says, I figured that out last week already. He says, in fact, this week, I've been listening to your talks online. A couple of months later, I finally bump into him at church. He tells me the story. The following Sunday, he comes to church and he's only sitting in the car. The, the parking lot, people are arriving. He doesn't have the courage to get out the car. He drives home. The next week, he brings his atheist wife with him. She says, shame, you really seem to want to go to this church. And at the end of the meeting, the end of the meeting, he looks at her and says, so what did you think? And she says, we need to come back. Amazing to see this guy coming to faith. Helen following soon after. His two teenage kids coming along. Now he's in our home group. He's there at an alpha table. I remember sitting with him for coffee. And he says, Terry, I still remember the time when I was sitting at a bar and it dawned on me that I'm no longer scared of death. Since I was small, I was scared of dying. He says, he says I've been set free from the fear of death. And I open up Hebrews 2 and I show him the passage. He says, that's exactly what's happened to me. And then there's Daryl and Mari. Got a buddy who surfs, and he ends up chatting to this guy who's just moved from Joburg. He's got this uh, mining company, and uh, he says, man, where do you live? Now, he lives in Constantia. You've got to go to this church, he says. And Daryl is quite put off by the guy's strong approach. Daryl goes home, speaks to his wife, Maury, and says, man, this guy on the beach, he was getting in my face about going to this church around the corner. Maury goes, what church? So she ends up coming. She comes two Sundays in a row. She picks up the Ignite book, takes it home. She says she reads through the Ignite book, all the testimonies, and she says, this is it. She comes to faith and then drags him to Elfin, and I got to host their table. 
fantastic to see Daryl coming to faith. But then it gets all more exciting. So I've got Chris and Natasha, Daryl and Mari, coolest people on the planet, both got top, top billing homes. And I've done the big elf, and I have the idea for a more intimate elf. So I pitch them, hey, what if you two, you two couples first get to know each other, and me, Julie can't come, she's got five kids at home. So the five of us, we do Alpha on a Wednesday night. And, and, and they're going, who are we going to invite? And I said, well, you can invite your friends. And I show them Matthew 9, the Matthew party. And they look at me. They can't believe what I'm doing. And now the challenge is, who am I going to invite? And we all got the challenge to invite one or two couples. And I invite the, the world champion, uh, drop knee bodyboarder of the world. I'm sure he's going to say yes. He says no. I invite Tristan Gardner to come. And he says no. So my heart's dejected. And I've got four more people. I've got to invite them by the next two days. And I remember just going, God, I'm so tired. I've got so much on my plate. God, please, I can't take any more no's. I've got four people. Just give me one of them. And I remember just feeling faith, invite Grant. Now, I hadn't had a meal with Grant. Uh, we'd had a coffee, but he hadn't come to my house. And I sent him this long email. I said, I know this might sound a bit weird. Alpha this. Why didn't you come along? And he agreed to come. And we get there, the Alpha Awesome. We called it Alpha Awesome. And four couples arrive. And all four couples start off, they're totally disin- they're not disinterested, they like the social stuff, but they're all clearly a million miles away from faith. Well, by Alpha Saturday, as you can imagine, they're all believing, they're experiencing the Holy Spirit, and we agreed to turn it into a small group, a parenting small group, which means once a month we bring the whole family together. And I remember being at this big bride, myself, Julie, and our five kids, and counting another 25 human beings there, all of them having come to faith because of, in a sense, missional me and missional we and a church that God, that God is missional he. Why don't you stand up and in groups of three, uh, number three, you pray about missional me. Lord Jesus, we thank you in your word that you said that the harvest is ripe. But the workers are few, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust out workers into the field. And we really pray that you would do that, Lord, and that you would stop with us. Uh, Lord, we just pray uh, for the missional me component of this, Lord, that all of us would prioritize lost people. Uh, that we would be uh, agents uh, of your gospel. That we would have the joy of seeing friends uh, surrender to you and be saved and rescued. And all God's people said...